do, 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 do. Here we go. My name's Todd. And this is Kathy. Welcome back to another episode of Zen Parenting Radio. This is podcast number 524. Why listen to Zen Parenting Radio? Because you'll feel outstanding. And who doesn't want to feel outstanding? And I always remember our motto, which is that the best predictor of a child's well-being is a parent's self-understanding. On today's show... It's a double feature, sweetie, right? Yeah, double feature. Two interviews. Who's on it? So um, our first interview is with our Zen Parenting Conference 2020 keynote, Tony Porter, who is the co-founder or founder? CEO. CEO of A Call to Men. Um, so during this interview, we talked to him about um, the, the A Call to Men and what their mission is, but more specifically about um, our culture and about what masculinity really means and how how to talk to uh, parents about raising healthy sons and daughters. Yeah, he's got a really um, awesome TED Talk, which is, I think, one of the first ways that we... Um we're That's how we were introduced to, to him. him. Yeah. So I've just been a huge fan of Tony's, and I'm so glad he's going to be at our conference. Uh, and then the second half is an interview with our friend Hunter Clark Fields. And she has a book uh, that is out now called Raising Good Humans. Um, and a mindful guide to breaking the cycle of reactive parenting and raising kind, confident kids. Yeah, so you guys get a two for one. That's right. So hopefully you enjoy it, and uh, we'll catch you on the other side of both interviews. Keep trucking. Um, so welcome, Tony Porter, keynote to the 2020 Zen Parenting Conference. So glad you're here. How are you doing today, Tony? I'm well in yourself. Thank you for having me. Uh, we're just glad to have you. Um, I'm already going to break script. We kind of had some ideas on what we want to ask you, but there's something that happened in the news just over the weekend that I wanted to ask you about. I'm not even sure if you're familiar with it, so I'll briefly describe, describe it. There's a a news reporter, and her name is Alex, I don't know how to pronounce her last name, Bozargian. Bozargian, yeah. And um, she's a news reporter. Do you remember where she's from, Kathy? Um, and she was doing a spot, and it was like for a marathon or some type of race. And, one of, and there's a bunch of people in the background kind of like waving. And one of the men ran behind her and slapped her on the rear end. And while they were taping, so she was on live TV and then he came up behind her and, and kind of hit her, you know, hit her from behind, obviously hit her behind and then kept running. And she was very, um, obviously thrown off and, um, looked very kind of frightened actually about what had just happened. Um, but it kind of became a big deal where she is actually going to, um, take some press action, charges. Yeah, press charges. So uh, my first question, Tony, are you familiar with this story or no? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm familiar with it. Yeah. Okay. So I just thought it'd be like a good framework for some of the topics that we wanted you to discuss. And, you know, my first impression, obviously, I kind of get lost in ego and I start thinking, what is this guy thinking? What an idiot, blah, blah, blah. And then once, you know, time, a little bit of time went by and I'm like, wait a second. Um, this is a man who made a really bad decision, but it's so easy for me to just um, remove myself from, you know, the society we live in, which is one of, in my judgment, sometimes patriarchy. And I'm trying instead to find myself how I've done similar things that um, objectifies women. So my invitation uh, for the, the audience, and I want you to comment on it, is like, 
as as a man, how how have I done something like this? Because it's just too simple and too easy to just attack this man. And I think that he deserves whatever legal things that are coming his way. But I just wonder if you have any thoughts on not necessarily, you know, attacking him, but like how... Well, how we talk about it. How yeah. do we talk to men and explain to them why this is not okay for men who have thought this is no big deal? Like, what is the, what do you say to people who struggle with this? Well, for one, we don't practice too often from, from our leverage point. We don't practice too often attacking men ever you know uh we'll we'll we believe that men should be held accountable for for their behavior so whatever levels of accountability that are going to be put in place this man deservingly should be held accountable but from our leverage point what we really focus more on is he's a symptom his behavior is a symptom of the collective socialization in manhood what what the term we coined the man box his behavior is symptomatic of that you know uh he's like the uh cough in a cold right he's he's his behavior is symptomatic of the larger problem the larger issue uh that collectively we as men all have a responsibility in you know, doing self-examination and, and then becoming part of the solution to the challenge and, and to aid in changing. Uh, when you look at the collective socialization, what it means to be a man, we're taught to have less value in women. You see that in his behavior. When you look at the collective socialization of what it means to be a man, we're taught to view women as property, to take ownership of. You can see a semblance of that in his behavior. When we're taught you know, when we, when we, the, the teaching of the collective socialization of manhood teaches us that women are objects, particularly sexual objects. Obviously, you see that in his behavior. We're all taught collectively as men uh, this, this socialization. We don't all act it out the same way. So we won't all do what he did. Many of us totally disapprove of his behavior. But within the context of the collective socialization of manhood, we've all received that teaching. Now, how we deal with that teaching, you know, could be based on how woke we are. Uh, it could be based on just some teachings that we uh, received as, as younger men as to, quote, unquote, how far or how far not to go. All of this is in play. But very few of us get a pass that we're not part of that teaching and then how that teaching plays out. So this man, this man uh, like many men, need to be held accountable for their behavior, uh, while at the same time is really a teaching moment for men collectively in general. Tony, I've heard you say on many occasions, and, and tell me if my, I'm getting the language wrong, but you know we have to stop trying to call men out and instead call men in. And I really like the energy of that. And this this news story is a perfect example of it because I feel like the 12, minute, 12 million views on YouTube, we're just going to spend all our time demonizing this guy. And I feel like it's, a, it's more of an opportunity. To, how do we call men into it? And I just wonder if you can speak to that. Well, I'm not going to say we have to stop calling men out. It's not that absolute. I'm not creating that kind of an absolute. 
we need to continue to call men out as needed. This man needs to be called out as he has been, but it's also an opportunity at the expense of this woman, by the way, is an opportunity to call men in. So we still need to call some men out. That's not off the table, but the change that we want to see as a society, it requires us to also call men in. You take all of the women of the Me Too movement who called men out. That needed to happen. But to really shift, you know, the needle on what we want to accomplish, we need to take everything that's come from that, the anxiety, the education, all of that, that, you know, that men experience coming out of that. We need to take all of that and now create an opportunity, a movement to call men in. So calling men out is not taken off the table, but calling men out alone or just calling men out is not the solution in of itself. The solution also, which is ending the violence, requires us to also call men in. So this is an opportunity. He needs to be called out. That's hands down. But, and again, at the expense of, of the woman he assaulted, we now all, because that, that's what that was. That was called sexual assault. It was an unwanted touch. It was a sexual assault. But now having called him out, we need to use that opportunity, again, at her expense to call men in. Mm-hmm. You know, Tony, I, I work with uh, women. And one of the things that, you know, when we talk about this, both of those things that you just said, calling men out, calling men in to have a better understanding. And a lot of what I have found in this process is I've learned and through Todd and through your work a lot more about men and their experiences, you know, the man box that you described, but also the extreme loneliness that a lot of men feel. Um, I learned, you know, I've learned about the statistics. I don't have them off the top of my head, but that there is a really extreme male loneliness out there. And I'm wondering, you know, what your thoughts are about that and how that connects, contributes, how that's a part of the man box. Why are men so lonely? Well, it is very much a part of the experience of men, you know, uh, you know, when I when I when I think about this here, uh, this collective socialization of manhood and how it plays out, you know, uh, the alienation of men. You know, th- there is a crisis of loneliness amongst men and, and male identified folks. You know, we're socialized to uh, perform this kind of uh, solitary masculinity. You know, and 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 lack of uh, Connect, this lack of connection is killing us. You know, men die from suicide at a rate of about four times higher than women. Uh, again, this man box teaches us that we're only supposed to be strong and that we can handle everything on our own. You know, and 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 that asking for help, you know, is you know, and sharing emotions, you know, they're a sign of weakness. Uh, Men are taught that we don't ask for help, we don't offer help, we don't accept help. 
you know, it's all about handling our business. You know, uh, as a man, you're supposed to handle your business. Uh, and when you look at, you know, uh, the teaching of boys uh, between the age of three and five years old, we're telling boys to stop crying. And in essence, uh, at that age, cognitively speaking, when you tell a boy to stop crying, you are in essence telling him to stop feeling. Mm -hmm. You know, we shut down feelings and emotions with boys that by the time they're 16 years old, that if a boy is feeling twisted up about something and you ask him, John, what's wrong? His most immediate answer is, I'm good. He has to tell you he's good before he even considers telling you how he's feeling. And, 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 and it's usually a woman that he's going to share with, because the woman will stay to a table at the table with him. But once a boy tells a man, I'm good, men stop asking questions. Because again, men don't ask for help. We don't offer help. You know, uh, we don't accept help. So yeah, we, we, we are in, in a crisis right now, is, is without question, you know? This 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 epidemic of you know being able to handle our business as men it keeps men from going to the doctor for for nagging physical issues it keeps us from getting help for mental health issues it, it keeps us from asking for help in school and work which limits our performance you know we don't even ask for directions driving thank God for GPS today because <laughs> men will drive around the same block passing the same gas station. 10 times, which actually means you're going in a circle before we'll stop and ask for help, you know? Mm -hmm. So we, we firmly believe that healthy manhood is the solution, you know? Uh, healthy manhood allows us to just to show a wide range of emotions. It, it allows us to ask for help and not always feel like we got to be in control, you know? And at the day, end of the day, it allows us to value women and girls and and care about them outside of sexual conquest, you know, nice. uh, is is a win-win all the way around. Is is you know is is going to uh, allow us uh, the freedom as men to be, you know, and to be whole and to be our authentic selves, and is going to pave the way for safety, equality, and, and equity for women and girls. Um, Tony, I've, uh, I've been lucky enough to speak to men's groups for a few years now. And when I used to start, I used to like say, you know, you turn on the news right now and whatever the front few stories are on the news, uh, it's usually men making bad decisions. And I've gotten kind of my ass handed to me, quite honestly, by certain men because they get so offended so quickly when I say something like that. Or if I say something like, use the term even using the term toxic masculinity or i refer to that gillette commercial that went viral earlier in the year so and it's it's so funny in my in my news feed this morning i read a quote by former president obama and he said most of the problems in the world came from old people mostly men holding on to positions of power as for women i'm absolutely confident that for two years if every nation on earth was run by women you would see a significant improvement across the board on just about everything. That's something I believe in. But I feel like if I said that to a normal man, there'd be so many of them that would so easily get offended. And I wonder if you struggle with the same thing. And if you do, what you do about it. Look, you, you know, for us at, at a call to men is not just, uh, dropping information on men 
we, we have a strategy in mind, right? We're not just trying to just say, okay, here's a fact, bam, and drop them any old kind of way. We believe that we can hold men accountable in conversation, in group settings, et cetera, et cetera, one-on-one. We can hold men in, in presentations with a thousand people in a room or 20. We can hold men accountable and love them through the process at the same time. We believe that's important. Our goal when we're in the presence of men is to reach in and grab their hearts, right? The hearts of men. Uh, That's what we're trying to do. Uh, To ensure that men leave our presence thinking and feeling differently than they did when they entered. So we have a strategy in mind. We're not just there to blast men for ill behaviors of men, and and that's the end goal. We want to get men on board. So we're very strategic. And I, I, I can't say everybody can do this, but we know it can be done, that we can have a very accountable conversation with men and have that conversation be loving and respectful. We believe, another phrase we coined that a call to men is that we're here to invite men, not indict men. And that we can do that, right? Uh, and move men along the spectrum of, of getting them on the journey to a place of healthy manhood. Uh, and I'm not saying that that's always the goal. Sometimes it is important to, you know, to really just hammer the point home. But overall, we're, we're being strategic in what we're, we're trying to do, right? So, I, I, you, know, I, you know, like everyone else, uh, I view the uh, Gillette commercial and, and, uh, and how toxic masculinity is now in play, you know, and, and where folks are at, you know. Uh, so your question is an important question, you know. Uh, and as I said earlier, if we're going to make progress, we got to figure out how to call uh, men in uh, to this conversation while at the same time calling them out. Uh, and, and, and the truth of the matter, this is one of the reasons we don't use the term toxic masculinity. You know, we, we, we have an appreciation for the way it's kept the discussion alive in the news media. And, and at least we're talking about masculinity. We're really getting average average men. You know, it had many of them. I'm I'm almost comfortable in my assumption the average man might not have never even had a discussion on masculinity, mm. right? Uh, so we're very very happy that that's happening. Uh, like on podcasts like this one right now, with you all, we're talking about masculinity. But you know, for us, this this is our issue. You know, if we allow men to separate themselves by saying I'm not that bad. Look at them, those guys over there, they're the ones with the toxic behavior. You know, we're missing, you know, the greatest, uh, the greatest potential for change. You know, we believe that collectively as men, we have work to do, that all men are socialized, you know, to view women as object property of less value. We believe, uh, these ideas are taught to men consciously and unconsciously and, and, and reinforced by society. Mm. Right, so 
there, there's a lot going on in, in this space. There's a lot going on. But how do you love men and hold them accountable at the same time? How do you talk to men about, you know, a lot of what we're doing, we're just kind of on remote control. We're just doing tradition. We're just doing what we've always been taught. We haven't really sat down and had critical conversations about what this means. Uh, we are, in essence, the first generation of men ever being held accountable for the ills of, of a male-dominated society. We're the first generation of men, as a result of that, being asked to promote healthy manhood. We're the first generation. So, you know, for us, we talk a lot about, you know, we're the first generation of men really just developing a voice to talk about these issues. This is all relatively new. Within the last 30 years or so, if we go back that far, we all wouldn't be on, on, on a call right now, on this podcast right now, having this conversation. So how do you be with men? and not, you know, beat them up in the process is, is really, really important. And, 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 and I, I want to say one thing, last thing on that, it, it, it's an art versus science. You know, it's an art versus science. It, it's a skill that you have to acquire. But, but, but in order to acquire that skill, we have to practice. And that's what we want to do, get men's, you know, in this space to practice. And one more last thing, because as men, we love control and we love perfection far too often. That's not gonna work here. We have to be vulnerable, we have to take risks. And the truth of the matter is, we don't have a lot of time to waste. So this is a plane that we're gonna have to build while we're flying it. Yeah. Yeah, you know, to your point about how this is like the first generation where this is going to discussed and we're actually, you know, bringing this out in the open and it's becoming part of our culture, at least to, you know, talk, discuss it. And, you know, Todd and I, majority of our time we spend with parents talking to them about, um, you know, how they're raising their children. And a lot of um, the parents we talk to who are raising boys, their question is, how do I start? You know, how do I start this process of raising my boy? And I'm putting this in quotations differently. Like, what do I do differently? What is, you know, and again, I know this is a huge question because there's so many pieces, but what is your best suggestion to parents who are raising boys that they can pay attention to or do a little differently to make a shift in this culture? Yeah, that that's a great question. Uh, and, you know, many times I'm talking to parents; they're very nervous about this because yeah. they 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 may very well know the right answer, but they're 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 very very fearful of their son being you know quote unquote a pioneer because knowing the right answers also does we also kind of know that. We see we know the kind of man we want our sons to be, but we also are fearful of what that then means for his experience from childhood to adulthood. You know, we're we're, we're frightened by that. We if we could just say, what kind of man do you want your son to be? We can name it all and and very comfortable. And but then if we talk about what's his journey to adulthood, we get very very frightened by by what he may experience but you know 
just just to answer that question, I I would say we need to listen to our boys about you know who they who they say and 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 who they show us that they are. You know, and one thing that's very very important to us at a call to men is is allowing them to be their authentic selves. Uh, you know, acknowledging we still live in a time where the man box dominates, right? Uh, you know, I coined that term way back in the mid-1990s, you know, really referring to this collective socialization of men. And we talked about this already, about boys being discouraged from showing their emotions at such an early age, you know, uh, how we push them beyond feelings to aggression, right? Straight from feelings, not even straight from feelings, no feelings but aggression. Uh, we can see how, how how this is reflected in, you know, the things that boys, I just find uh, for church, uh, you know, we help out children in the community that, uh, you know, that are, are less fortunate. And I, I selected a nine-year-old girl and uh, was talking to my wife and other women in church and, you know, women who have nine-year-old daughters about you know what gifts what's the appropriate gifts for her that's something that that she would like and we was talking about boys i would know automatically you know mm-hmm. video games right video games you can you know when you think about boys right you know and, and but the truth of the matter is you can reflect the aggression that we teach when we move boys away from filter aggression you can reflect it back to video games to music to movies, unfortunately, the pornography. You know, the average age that a boy first views pornography is 10 years old. That's the fifth grade, right? Mm-hmm. And if we allow that boy to continue that process without interrupting it and, and guiding him and even help him to make sense of what he's viewing, you know, 13, 14 years old, the stimulation process that comes with pornography, he will no longer be watching what might have been his intentions early on was to have, to see two people having sex. By the age of 13, he's watching denigrating, dehumanizing, and violence toward women. That's all he's seeing. Our boys become misogynistic in that process, right? The hatred of women sets in, in many cases, on our boys, you know, when they're still adolescents. So, you know, when come back to parents, you know, teaching about the man box, you know, and, and, and the harm that it's causing, you know, uh, from insecurity, uh, pain and shame, detachment, and again, far too often violence. Yeah. Um, uh, go, go ahead, Tony. I'm sorry. I, I just, just lastly on that piece, there's just a couple of things I also want to say on that piece that, you know, how, how do I say it? Understanding uh practicing promoting healthy manhood at the end of the day we believe that's the solution right so we're talking about parents from from bullying uh suicide mass all of that stuff all of it is is wrapped around this uh we talk about parenting you know we we the things that we allow girls to do versus boys we believe girls are a lot closer to humanity so having a full expression of, of feelings and emotions, right? The ability to ask for help, the ability to say, 
you know, this doesn't feel good, that doesn't feel, I'm sad, I'm happy, right? Uh, the ability to say, I don't know. We allow girls to be vulnerable, right? And boys are taught to be in control, right? We can challenge this here. Uh, the truth of the matter is that we begin to teach boys what we teach girls, we create healthier men at the end of the day. Mm. Um, so, Tony, uh, as we let you go, one last question. Uh, we use pop culture quite a bit as a vehicle to kind of, you know, laugh and cry and teach ourselves a little bit. Um, do you have any, um, you know, for the moms and dads that might be listening and they have like whatever, an eight-year-old boy or a 12-year-old boy or a 15-year-old boy, are there any thing that sticks out in your mind that you can, that that you think would be a good vehicle towards healthy masculinity, whether it be about movies or books or even athletes that are displaying healthy masculinity? Is there is there or screenings or basically is there anything in the culture right now that that you've been impressed by? You know, like a movie that's really had a good you know message, or a book that's had a good message, or have you seen the, the your work that you've been doing so long? Are you starting to see that translate into pop culture? Oh wow, got me got me a little stuck on that question there. What have I seen of late that's translating into pop culture that I would be supportive of? I don't know if if I have the the right answer for that question. I, I, what I what I, I I'm gonna answer that question a little differently. Sure. Uh, more so than pop culture. Uh, what what I'm what I'm seeing is that there are a number of parents today that are allowing their sons to be their authentic selves that are really challenging uh, the notions of manhood in a way that we have more boys who are gender non-conforming, more boys who are much more comfortable with the freedom of, of being who they are, their authentic selves. And I, I know my sons are seeing authenticity amongst boys their age, young men their age, at a greater level than, than I did. Yeah. Uh, I believe that we have better representation of this here in their you know, in their music, in their entertainment, in their car. Look, I don't have little ones. I don't watch cartoons, right? The things that, you know, that, that the little ones watch when I can remember when my children were children. But what I'm, what I'm, I'm hearing said is that there's just greater representation, you know, uh, today. Uh, those in Hollywood are moving the dime on this here. They're starting to, to create, you know, uh, the different images uh, that really reflect who we are as a society. So there's this change happening. Uh, I don't have a specific area to, to say, you know, this is a, this is a show our kids should watch, et cetera, et cetera. But, but I, I am well aware that the representation is showing up. And I, I'm also well aware by, you know, different friends and, and, and colleagues and staff that, boys, we still got so much work to do. So I'm kind of like uh, hesitant in saying this. I get, I, and I, we should talk about progress, but some, sometimes when you talk about progress, it, it 
the ears that it falls on tends to say we don't have work to do. Right. I get nervous sometimes talking about progress, but you can see you can see the progress in 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 many of our children uh, being their authentic selves, challenging their parents, uh, creating their own narratives, telling their own stories and experiences. We see it today. I mean, do I see it more because I'm in those spaces? That, that's possibly so. Uh, but I, I believe there are very few of us that are not seeing it, even those who are very late persons in these spaces. You're seeing it. And uh, and bravo to them. And, it, you know, uh, and so we're, we're, we're improving. We're doing better. <laughs> and we still have a tremendous amount of work to do. Thank you. Yeah. You, All right. Y'all take care. All Thank right. you, too. Bye-bye. Thank you, Tony. Okay. Thanks, you guys. Uh, this episode is sponsored by Candlewick Press, publishers of You Are Light, by New York Times bestselling children's book, author-illustrator Aaron Becker, creator of the Journey Trilogy. You Are Light is a prayer of thanks to the light that dwells inside all the brilliant wonders of the natural world, including us. Hold this unique book up to the light and watch as a rainbow-colored circles in its cover glow. You Are Light is available wherever books are sold. Thank you, Candlewick Press. And you are light. Okay, here we go. Uh, my name's Todd Adams, and we're interviewing Hunter Clark Fields. Yes. What's your name? Uh, this is Kathy Adams. Um, Hunter's a good friend of ours. When did we meet Hunter? Years ago. Several. It's been a while. How many years, Hunter? <laughs> Seven? Six? I don't know. Something like that, yeah. I started listening to you a long, long time ago. I'm one of the OL, original listeners, I think. That's right. Yes. Yeah. Right, or OGs. So Hunter has quite the path herself. Um, she has a book coming out. What's the release date? December 1st, and it's called Raising Good Humans, A Mindful Guide to Breaking the Cycle of Reactive Parenting and Raising Kind, Confident Kids. Wonderful. Um, before we get into the book, um, you've been doing a lot of different things that got you to this point. Will you give us kind of like just kind of some cliff notes of where you started and how you got to where you are? Sure. Yeah. I started getting into mindfulness as a teenager because I desperately needed it. I, uh, I started reading about it and it just provided a lot of relief reading about it for me. And then about 10 years after that, I finally was able to like kind of sit and do my own meditation practice after reading about it for a decade. And that was like a game changer for me. And it really uh, evened me out and allowed me to take big steps, bigger steps in my life. And then I thought, okay, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to be great. Like I'm, I'm, I'm pregnant with my first child. I'm sitting in this meditation group and I'm thinking, oh yeah, you know, like I got this. She's going to be this calm, peaceful child because look at where we are. And then it, it just so wasn't like that. It was a, you know, big, big shock to the system. And so the difficulty, the intense, like, you know, psychological, physical, all the challenges of moving into motherhood, you know, were just so intense for me as a kind of a highly sensitive person. I just felt it so much. I I'd started listening to you guys then. And I started also like blogging about my experience and writing about my experience and, and the importances of creating a daily self-care practice and things like that. And, and uh, so I, as I started to do that, then I started to expand and kind of dive into learning. Um, how many kids do you have? I have two daughters now. Oh, and how old are they? 12 and nine. Okay. Yeah. I know, Hunter, I remember there was a time, it was years ago, but I remember 
you emailed me and asked me, because I guess I was talking about yoga on the show, and you said, do you really do a full yoga practice when your kids are around? I don't know <laughs> if you remember asking me this question. And your kids are a little younger than mine. So like my youngest is 12. So, mm-hmm. and then, you know, I have a 16 and a 14 year old. But I said, well, not always, but sometimes. And you were like, I can't, your, your comment was something to the, I can't even imagine being able to do that at this stage where, cause you were doing yoga, but you were like fitting it in, in between. So do you, now that your kids are the age they are, do you feel like you have more space for you? Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, so much more space because they're so independent too. They're doing all these different things and they don't necessarily, they don't want to hang out. They're not hanging on my legs or hanging, you know, they want to hang out with mama in the same way, which is like, wonderful, right? But then it has all these other challenges (laughs) that come along that really require you to be grounded and have some skillful communication too. I mean, going into adolescence is like, you know, it's just an interesting journey. And I'm, I'm still really close to my oldest daughter. And, and I feel like, you know, the, the tools I learned along the way, like being able to transform like the language that I used to come out of my mouth (laughs) has has really helped, you know, get us to this place. Mm. Yeah. But, um, why'd you write the book? Well, I wrote the book because it came out of a curriculum. So I created a, a mindful parenting curriculum and I teach it in the, in a mindful parenting membership, but it's funny actually, because you know, Sometimes I I really remember ta- listening to you guys. Uh, I I kind of worked out some a lot of my challenges and thoughts in, in my painting um, when my daughters were young. I like got a mother's helper and I spent some hours in the studio. I would listen to you guys on the on my headphones, and I remember thinking, "Yes, that's wonderful, Todd and Kathy." But how mm-hmm. how do you do this? Thing? <laughs> and so in some ways, like this is, there's a lot of how in this book, you know, how do you practice this thing? How exactly do you do this? How do you take care of those big feelings? How do you, you know, cultivate more self-compassion? How do you respond more skillfully? So I really like, for me, I was like really interested in the nitty gritty of like, how, how do I do that? And so that was, um, that was like a real, you know, and I really felt like I was in a big sense, failing at parenting, like as far as what my expectations were, you know, I was like yelling at my child, I was scaring her and it hurt my soul so much to see that, you know, I could just see this generational pattern, see my father's anger, like kind of coming out that same feeling of this is unacceptable, all this stuff coming out. And so it just was, it was so important for me to figure out how, and I really felt like, okay, like if I can do this, (laughs) I'm as terrible at this, at this moment as anyone could be, you know, in some ways, like you can do it too. And here's how basically. Well, and I'm so, I'm somebody who likes step-by-step stuff and Kathy, (laughs) Kathy does not. Um, like we just recorded a podcast this morning and it was about Imago dialogue by Harville Hendricks. And I like, like, this is what you say first, second, third, and fourth. And for Kathy, it's just a little bit, I don't know. How do you, well, it's not that I don't like it. I mean, I appreciate that it's available. Like it's good. Like it, we, we need structure to begin a process. Like it's not as if I'm against it. It's that I think when you, you know, when I get to a place where, and this, and this has a lot to do with just that I do this for a living is that you get to a place where things become more intuitive and you are working from, you're not like 
like, I remember when I was in um, school or just getting out of school and everyone's like, what's your favorite therapy and what therapy do you use? And are you behavioral or are you gestalt or you, and I'm like, I don't even know. I, I, it's all like blended into together where now I have more of an intuitive, you know, experience when I'm talking with people where I'm not trying to use just one behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, and so to that point, uh, Hunter, like give us an example, like one of your chapters, choose your favorite one and give us some examples of some hows um, that you share, like if it is regarding something, you know, something specific where you're like, this really helped me, um, something that you want to pass along or. Sure. Yeah. yeah. I think really one of the most valuable chapters for me to the information for me to pass along is really that the chapter on self-compassion, because the whole, you know, it's, it's it's a foundation for everything because if you you're doing any kind of wanting to grow and learn anything at all and you're greeting yourself with that really harsh mean voice in your head then you're gonna be like stuck in that little box of being scared to take those steps and inevitably have these human moments and so for me the practice of like how do i practice self-compassion is really helpful you know this idea of it both being uh, a practice you can do in the moment where you have a human mistake and you mess up and a, a, a muscle that you can build. So as far as like a muscle that you can build, that sort of part where you can practice kind of regularly daily, you know, that just that basic loving kindness practice of saying to yourself, may I be safe? May I be happy? May I be healthy? Um, that I sometimes offer that, and I, and I know that sometimes, especially moms have a lot of resistance to that. And I would actually challenge you to, to offer it to yourself and maybe even think of yourself as a, as a four-year-old child, you know, um, and just to, to really kind of make that a practice of, no, I am worthy and may I have these things. And then kind of on the flip side, in that moment, when you've maybe yelled at your child or you're losing it and you had made a mistake, you know, that going back and looking at the the way you talk to yourself and maybe coming back and saying, and I'm touching a hand to my heart as I do both of these, you know, because that touch actually really helps. But um, you know, okay, this was hard. You were you were it was a tough moment talking to yourself as you would talk to a best friend and literally think, what would I say to my best friend right now? And then and then you know practice that. And it is a muscle that grows stronger. It may feel weird and awkward at first and it's okay. You can fake it till you make it and you can practice it, make it a muscle that grows stronger. Yeah. It's funny. We, um, I think we've been talking about self-compassion for a long time, but I don't know if we've dedicated an entire podcast to it up until like three weeks ago, we dove deep into Kristen Neff's Ted talk and I play clips from it. I think we had talked about it before, but you just mean like that the whole podcast was about her. Yes, it was specifically about self-compassion. And as you say that, Hunter, I just feel like it's such a foundational thing that we need to have as parents uh, in order to be good parents because we're so uh, quick to judge ourselves much more harshly, generally speaking. I mean, there's probably some people out there that judge each other more harshly than, than them. But in my experience, it's usually... We're judging ourselves. Mm-hmm. Well, and I, you know, like I, all the information in your book and everything that you're focusing on, um, I kind of just view it, you know, the, when I talk to people about these things, like it's an alternative, like self-compassion. It, it's one of those things where, like you said, in the moment, you can notice yourself getting angrier and angrier and blaming your child and doing that. And it's like, what's an alternative? Because that's what I'm sure you hear this too, because I know you teach a lot of moms. Um, they'll be like, well, I'm angry. What, what else am I going to do? 
And the alternative is different kind of language going, you know, saying something different to yourself and recognizing what happens to your body. Have you had, you know, you know, I know that you teach in person and also online, like have, have you had some clients and people really recognize the difference in how that feels? Oh yeah, for sure. They, yeah, I get the messages and, you know, people tell me like, I actually had this amazing email from someone who was like with her mother on her dying bed and said that the the, specifically self-compassion, the practice and the, the loving kindness meditation that she had learned, like helped her kind of show up for those, that moment and be there with her mom in that moment, which was like kind of, you know, probably triggering a lot of fear and all that stuff, you know? So I, yeah, it's amazing to kind of get those messages. And like, there's so many things, like even in that, like, you know, what's the alternative, that whole idea of like, even, you know, there's baby steps we can kind of take towards these practices, right? Like, like in, um, I also talk about like acknowledgement, right? Just acknowledging, saying what you see, what's going on, right? This is like a basic, like how to kind of being mindful and aware in that present moment. But like when you're starting to get frustrated and starting to get annoyed, saying, saying out loud, I'm starting to get frustrated and annoyed. I mean, it sounds so simple, but it's like, when we do that, we're like connecting the verbal part of the brain, we're acknowledging what's happening, and it's actually just kind of lowering the temperature a little bit. And as we can start to just like acknowledge and label and say out loud those things kind of earlier down in the cycle, it takes the temperature down. And so it's this kind of alternative way. And even if you get to the point like, I got super angry at my daughters the other night after a movie because... Um, it was a new thing that my daughter had, she like laughed at me <laughs> and I was like, Whoa. <laughs> and, um, and what I, what I did in that moment is I like yelled, I'm feeling really angry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you know, so even in the moment, if you're like losing it and you're, but if you can have the wherewithal to instead say something like, I'm feeling really angry. That's like a skillful choice because then you're not saying you're a what blah whatever. You're owning whatever you have for yourself. And then I went and walked outside in the dark for 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, and you know, there's so much happening in that moment that you know, when parents hear that story, they obviously think about you and what you did and how you managed to like, you know, vocalize what you were feeling and, and take responsibility for it. And then as you know, as you say, and you talk about this too, is then your children learn that anger is normal, that mom feels it, that it, this is how it can be handled in a way that is, you know, societally appropriate. Um, And so there's so much more happening in that moment than just your experience. There's a learning, there's a connection um, there's something like, did you have the experience of after that going back and discussing with them? Not in like a, let's sit down and discuss. It doesn't have to be really formal, but like, did they ask you, are you feeling better mom or anything? <laughs> like what happened after? Well, actually I, the next day, as I picked them up from the bus stop, I said to them, or no, that was a, a different moment. But now I think in the morning we said, um, we said, you know, like, yeah, I was like really, <laughs> I was feeling really angry last night, you know, and we talked about it and it was like, yeah, okay. Um, it wasn't super fun. Right. (laughs) I experienced that. No. And it's just like, okay, but this is, you're right. Exactly. Like this is life and we normalize it and we model how to take care of those, how to experience these things. Well, and notice your language, your language was not, you are making me angry or I'm angry at you. You said, 
I am feeling angry. And I just wonder if you can talk about the differences between what I just said, some people might say, and what you said. Oh, yeah. And there's a world of difference in that. That's a really great thing to pull apart because, you know, basically that, that ang- the language of like blaming the other for what's happening, that's like, you did this, you did this, you're, you're making me do this. And that, when you say that to anyone, like they tend to feel defensive, right? Mm-hmm. So you're putting someone on the defensive and they're not wanting to hear whatever message you're giving them because you're kind of blaming them. So they're going to feel defensive. Um, but if you can just speak when you have a problem and you problem with someone's behavior, if you can speak about that in a way that's not blaming them, like, you you know, it's that I teach the basic like I messages here, like, how, how do you speak in such a way that people can receive your message? When I say to, you know, when I say I'm feeling angry, when I say whatever I'm feeling, there's not really much to argue about, you know, they can defend themselves, but they can't argue with the fact that I'm feeling angry. And I'm owning those feelings myself. It's not you're, you're making me do anything. It's just I having those things. And so it's, it's easier for them to hear and more accurate. Mm. Um, I see that you have a chapter called Solving Problems Mindfully. I love solving problems, <laughs> but I think sometimes I solve problems not from the mindful perspective. What's, what's cooking in that chapter? Do you know? Yeah. So, um, So, you know, when you have a problem, you know, you can, there's tools to like kind of express your problem kind of more skillfully, but then, you know, you might have a problem that, you know, where you have a certain need and your child has a certain need. And so you're kind of at, at odds there, you know, this is like a difficult problem to solve. And so when we look at, sometimes we, you know, kind of traditionally the way we solve problems is like the parent decides what the solution is and kind of pushes that solution down onto the kid. And over the course of time, that causes a lot of resentment because the, the child doesn't have any say in it. Then you kind of have to be the enforcer because then you know they have no buy-in on your solution and all of these things. So instead, if we look at problems and say, like, okay, I have some needs that aren't being met. These are my needs. What are your needs, basically? This is kind of the way the problem is broken. It's broken down very step-by-step step in the book, but it's like, well, these are my needs. These are your needs. Let's brainstorm some solutions because the thing with problems is that we get stuck at the level of solutions, mm-hmm. you know, and we get don't get underneath it to the level of needs. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the solution you could say, like your your daughter might say to you, like, I need the car to go, I need the car tonight. And you're like, no, 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 I'm using the car tonight. And then you're like, boom, you're stuck at the level of solutions. But instead you say, What are you what am I needing? What are you needing? Oh, you need to be here at this time. I need to be here at this time. Maybe you can get a ride home and I'll take you there. Blah, 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 blah. You can work it out. You know, if you get, there's always a lot more solutions to generally what the needs are. So they're mm. kind of at these different levels. Yeah. So it's kind of getting underneath it to, to look at that and how to, how to implement that in a way that's pretty family friendly. <laughs> Yeah. And getting our, you know, ego out of the way that we're going to win, you know, or that because we're the adult, everything should come first for us. And while I understand that there are times when that just has to be for whatever reason, there are things Mm -hmm. that kids don't understand, or there's responsibilities that adults have, you know, we got to get to work, you know, that Mm -hmm. kind of thing. But that there are times when there can be a mindful exchange of, you know, as you said, like your needs are, are important and valued in this home. So what are your needs? Um, and it's, 
It's so cool though, because then the, the, chil- the child buys in so much more and you don't kind of have to be the enforcer, I think, which is so cool. And then, it, you know, then it's great because it sets kids up for the future, not as like seeing the way we solve problems, like for instance, in the workplace is I just decide and you all do what I say, but it's like, what are you needing? What am I needing? You know, and we start to just start to think that way, which I mm. think is really cool. Yeah. Again, it like you said, it's more than just that moment. It's teaching for the future. Um, so Hunter, give us a few of your favorite things right now, besides your book, of course, Raising Good Humans, you know, which is one of your favorite things because it's your world right now and, you know, going around and telling people about it. But what are you, is there anything you're watching, listening to, enjoying that's been helping you either in a self-care way or in a more um, formal, like professional way? Hmm. Let me think. It's funny because my podcast listening has really shifted towards like, I don't want to learn anything on my podcast anymore. And now I just kind of want to be entertained and laugh. And so this is kind of a funny one that maybe like for (laughs) if you really, really want to laugh and you you have a fairly okay stomach, the, the podcast, my dad wrote a porno is so funny that I've found it difficult to drive sometimes while listening to this podcast because I'm laughing so hard. I will fall off the gym equipment or I will find it hard to drive. So that is hilarious. And I would totally recommend that. Um, I really love it's It's, it's like in it's something season. It's, uh, it's, I don't know. It's this, this, three people from England. It's this guy whose dad actually kind of wrote this like amateur novel (laughs) and then his two friends and they're British broadcasting and they basically tear apart the terrible writing and ridiculousness of this. Anyway, it's so funny. So I, I go for that for laughing and, uh, you know, um, uh, wait, wait, don't tell me the sort of classic yep. NPR show. Um, I'm really loving as far as another great book that kind of dives di- deeper into one topic that is in my book. Um, I'm really, there's two books I want to share with you. And one is um, Carla Nomberg's How to Stop Losing Your Beep at Your Kids. <laughs> will not say the word. Rhymes with ship. Um, anyway, fabulous book. And she's really funny and very down to earth. And I love her. And I'm also really loving for the third thing. Um, I really loving Kate Northrup's book, do less. Mm. And, um, she was a podcast guest recently and it's just really fascinating. Look at how we can kind of work with our own natural rhythms and cycles to be actually more effective by kind of doing less, which is very cool. Mm, I love that. I love her too. She's wonderful. And I love, I was, it's funny that you say that. I was just reading something. I think it was my note from the universe this morning and said something about daydreaming and doodling and how the ability to just do that allows you to, you know, tap into more of your genius and more of your energy. And it's not like it's the first time I've ever heard that, but those reminders are really helpful because I am a doodler and a daydreamer and the sometimes my the productivity messages in my head you know overpower that and so i really like mm-hmm. the idea of why doing less is actually vital or that's actually helpful rather than distracting it's helpful well and it's funny like i go in waves like i'm a pretty big consumer of like self help content as i think you are yeah, hunter and kathy is <laughs> and i think it's i think your point is really valid me too in that get away from all that for a while. And then it just makes it more fresh when you come back to it, you know? Well, and it, it, you want it to feel authentic. There are times when no books are speaking to me mm-hmm. and no podcasts are speaking to me. And it's not a decision. Like I'm done. It's like, 
it, it going back to what you said about being natural, it, there's nothing that's calling to me. And if a funny podcast or a more political podcast or a more like, I love crime and stuff like that. I love, um, yeah, like true uh, crime stuff. Yeah. And if that, and it doesn't, it doesn't quite fit all the other parts of my life, but I, I enjoy it. It's, I like listening to a story. So I'm, I'm right there with you with kind of ditching it for a little while so we can come back we, to it. And we got to shake it up a little. Like we get into these sort of habits and grooves. My husband and I were just talking about this last night. We took our kids to the YMCA and they were in the pool and he and I were sitting in the sauna and we we're like, why do we never go to like a roller derby event? You know, like we never go bowling or skiing like we've we never do any of that stuff as a family and we're like why don't we do that stuff like we should just like and we're thinking of like maybe we'll just try to do something that's like something we don't usually ever do like once a month every <laughs> next year so we're gonna, we might might implement that plan we'll see <laughs> change it up well hundred this um, book is wonderful and I appreciate you you know like you said it started as a curriculum and then it became a book that people could really access and um, work through and thank you for sharing it um, yeah I just want to give you a chance to kind of just promote obviously the book but anything else that you do to our listeners well sure so raising good humans you can buy it at raisinggoodhumansbook.com and there's some book bonuses if they sign up before the end of the year they'll get some special book bone or if they buy the book before the end of the year they'll get some special book bonuses um and I would encourage them if you, you know, there's the Mindful Mama podcast. I've had a great chance to talk to amazing experts, including you two guys. Um, and, um, and I really enjoy it and have a good, good time there. And so that's all at mindfulmamamentor.com. Awesome. Thank you, Hunter. Hunter, thank you so much. We'll see you at the conference on awesome. February 28th and 29th. Um, Hunter Clark Fields, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us, Hunter. And for the rest of you listeners, uh, we'll catch you next week. Have a good week. Have a good one, everybody. Thanks for listening, everyone. Remember to subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. And feel free to leave a five-star review on iTunes. It helps people find us. Also subscribe and review our Pop Culturing podcast, a Gen X viewpoint on movies and TV with an emphasis on personal growth and self-awareness. It's basically the flip side of Zen Parenting Radio. Do you want more Zen Parenting? Check out our third podcast, otherwise known as Team Zen. One of our team members described it as an advice column meets group help meets like-minded community. With your $25 subscription, you get two live Zen Talks with an opportunity to ask us live questions, plus a Facebook community where you can interact or just listen to like-minded parents. If you can't join us live, you can still access all the Zen Talks through the Team Zen podcast app. Zen Parenting Conference 2020 is February 28th and 29. We'll be discussing sex ed, gender, anxiety, neurodiversity, and healthy relationships. Go to zenparentingconference.com to get your tickets. Interested in inviting us to speak at your conference or organization? Go to zenparentingradio.com and submit a speaker request. And while you're there, check out our upcoming events or you can purchase one of my three books. If you ever shop via Amazon, you can help us out by first going through the Amazon link under the Support Us link on our homepage. It doesn't cost anything to you, but we get a small commission from Amazon. And guys, I have a one-on-one coaching practice. It's called Coaching for Guys. You want to achieve a better work-life balance or deepen your relationships with loved ones? We can talk in person, phone, FaceTime, you choose. And don't forget about Tribe Men's Group. We have a virtual community from men all over the world. Head on over to tribemensgroup.org or shoot me an email at Todd at zenparentingradio.com. It's an opportunity for guys to come together and talk about what really matters. 
Finally, I want to give a special thanks to our founding partner, Jeremy Kraft. He's a bald head of beauty, and the company he has is Avid. They do painting and remodeling throughout the Chicagoland area. Go to avidco.net or give them a call at 630-956-1800. Thanks for all your love and support, and keep on trucking.